The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. We're going to be looking this morning in Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. Um, we, we lit the shepherd candle, but we're not actually going to be talking about the shepherds this morning. Um, we're going to continue on from kind of where we left off last Sunday. Uh, so we'll read uh, Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. And uh, this is uh, oftentimes not, not a story we think of when we think of the birth of Christ in Advent, but uh, it's very much a part of the, uh, the birth of Christ. And so um, we're going to look at this this morning. So let's read Matthew 2, 13 through 15. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was spoken to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Um, and that's actually what I titled the message this morning, Out of Egypt I Called My Son. And, uh, you know, I don't know kind of what your background is, but if you grew up uh, celebrating Christmas, especially from a Christian background, uh, you probably have very clear images of what the nativity is supposed to look like, right? And maybe you have had in your home a nativity scene, or there's been, you know, Christmas pageants and plays where we play out the nativity, and it, it all has these these key features that we just know have to be a part of it, right? You've got baby Jesus in the manger, usually somehow glowing in the dark. He's radioactive, apparently. Uh, you've got Mary and Joseph uh, looking on, maybe Mary seated, maybe Joseph standing behind somehow. Also, sometimes glowing in the dark, sometimes not, depending on how much radioactive exposure they've had, apparently. And then, uh, then of course, you have the, the animals in the stable, because they're in the... They're in the, they're in the, in the in the stable, maybe sometimes a cave, but it's a place where the animals are. So you've got donkeys and sheep and other animals, cows maybe. And then, of course, you've got to have a, the, the token shepherds there with their shepherd staffs and some sheep. And then, of course, you've got the, the magi uh, kind of looking very royal and dignified and a couple of their camels standing in the background um, And then, of course, you've got to have the the star shining down, illuminating the whole scene. Uh, Sometimes the star is also pictured as an angel uh, hovering above. You know, you've got this beautiful scene, right? And it's true. And even even if, uh, you know, we understand that perhaps the shepherds and the magi didn't all arrive at the same time on the same night, it's just nice having this picture where we feel like we've captured all, all of Jesus' birth, the whole story, in this one snapshot. And so it's... It's poetic, and even though it's not always historically accurate, it's nice to have this picture, and that's kind of our image of the nativity. Um, but and we 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 kind of like the satisfaction of knowing we've captured the whole story in this one scene. But I would argue that uh, there's some things missing from this picture, right? Uh, some key elements, and and as we look in the next verses that we just read, um, we kind of skip over this part, right? And uh, this picture of, of 
Joseph and Mary being uh, alerted, well, Joseph in, in a dream in the middle of the night, and, and really running for their lives because Herod's out to kill them, right? So I, with the help of AI, I kind of created my own version of a better nativity, right? I think this is really how we should picture the nativity. <laughs> and thanks to AI for helping me do that. Um, that's really more, more the picture, right? Uh, running for their lives, right? And that's, that's what we see here. Um, uh, and, and the thing is, uh, this is also an important part of the story, right? But, but, uh, we, we don't, we don't always like this part because, uh, it's just not as warm and fuzzy, right? It's nice that the shepherds come to worship Jesus, the, the magi come bringing gifts to worship Jesus. This picture of running for their lives is just doesn't sync with a cozy Christmas, right? But it's really a part of the story. And it's, and it's important, and it's, it's important and significant, uh, that, that Jesus travels to, to Egypt, and, and there's this prophecy, right? Uh, out of Egypt I called my son. Um, but honestly, I, I mean, I've been a pastor for a long time. I've preached more Christmas sermons than I care to count. And honestly, I dread Christmas because I have to preach more sermons on Christmas again, right? And uh, so, but in all of those, I'll, I'll be honest, I have never focused just on these three verses, right? I have done uh, 13 through uh, the end of the chapter in a chapter. I've never just focused on these verses. And so even I am guilty of just kind of, Pushing uh, this story aside, but it's actually important, and it tells us some very important things about Jesus, about who he is, why he came, and, and most notably, we want to really try to wrestle with this prophecy, out of Egypt I called my son. In what way is Jesus fulfilling those words? Have you ever thought about that, right? How does Jesus fulfill this prophecy, out of Egypt I called my son? And why does that matter, right? Why does that matter? So let's, uh, let's unpack this a little bit and see if we can uh, fill out our picture of the nativity by including this important account. Um, and, and the first thing we see uh, that's important, I think, is to notice that not everyone worships Jesus. Right? Jesus comes and we like the parts that we celebrate those who come to worship him, but just as much a part of the story is the reality that there are those who do not worship Jesus. From day one of his life, right from the very time of his birth, Jesus has enemies, right? And, and so in verse 13 it says, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the childless mother and run. Flee, literally, but run. Escape to Egypt and remain there till I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Right? And of course, we saw with the Magi, they came to Herod, and uh, we, we know, because we know the story, that Herod says, yeah, I want, tell me where he, the child is, because I want to worship him too. But of course, we, we know the story, and we know that he's lying, and that he does not want to worship the child, but he actually wants to destroy him. He is threatened by this newborn king. And so from the very beginning, uh, he sets himself up as an enemy of Christ, who, of Jesus, who wants to destroy him. Um, and so Jesus has these, these serious enemies from the very beginning. Um, and of course it says, when they had departed, that's speaking of the Magi who, who brought their gifts, and, uh, and, and we see they've departed the scene now. Um, 
Uh, and, and they're also warned in a dream not to return to Herod. Uh, and this, this serves to give a, a bit of uh, time, um, right? If they had returned directly to Herod and said, hey, we found him, uh, that would have really cut down the amount of escape time that Mary and Joseph had. But the, the angel warns them in a dream and they, they uh, depart a different way, not going through Jerusalem. And so it gives them some time. But how much time does it take for Herod to figure out that he's been tricked? Right? Probably not much. Because Herod's probably up at night looking at his watch, waiting for these guys to report back. Right? And so it doesn't buy much time. Uh, How long will it take before Herod realizes that he's been tricked? And he's already determined to kill Jesus. How much more when he, angry will he be when he discovers he's been, he's been duped? uh, so it says that this, uh, uh, when they had departed, it says, behold, and really the emphasis or force of this word is suddenly, right, quickly, uh, this angel appears to Joseph in a vision uh, uh, and says, in a, in a dream, and says, run, right? So um, we don't know exactly the timing, but the, what the picture that's here is that the, the Magi show up in the evening and they come bringing their gifts, and kind of like the nativity picture, you know, the, uh, they're there presenting their gold and frankincense and myrrh, camels in the background. And, uh, and they leave, uh, kind of maybe in the evening, late at night, in the dark, they, they head on. Um, and Joseph and Mary are like kind of blown away by all of this, and they go to sleep dreaming of this basket of gold they just got given, right? And thinking, wow, this is kind of cool, and thinking life's pretty good. And they fall asleep, and then, boom, in the middle of the night, suddenly, uh, Joseph is, has this vision, this dream. It says, run, run, right? Um, and and uh, Herod is, is out to, to kill this child, to destroy him. Uh, so uh, Joseph, we see, obeys, and he gets up in the middle of the night, and he wastes no time, and he, he flees to Egypt. Um, uh, and... and uh, Egypt might seem to us kind of strange. Uh, why would they go to Egypt? But actually, uh, during this time, for about two or three hundred years before this, uh, Israel had encountered a lot of persecution from the Romans, and actually a lot of Jews had fled to Egypt. In fact, during this time, there was a population of, uh, of over a million people living, living in, of Jewish people living in Alexandria, Egypt. And in fact, there were so many there that they had actually built a replica of the temple in Alexandria where they could, they could worship. Right, so there's this huge community, so uh, likely that's where they were heading. We don't know exactly, but very good chance. And maybe they even knew people uh, who, who lived there. Um, but uh, uh, through all this, uh, we, we, we can note uh, Joseph's incredible obedience Right, throughout the birth accounts, the one thing that Joseph always does is he does what he's told. Right? And so he's a great example of somebody who just has very simple, obedient faith. Right? It, says, uh, it says that Joseph got up, he got his family up, he rose, took the child and his mother by night, and departed to Egypt. Right? And uh, throughout the birth narrative, um, Joseph... That's his role, right? He just does what he's told. So in, in verse, in chapter 1, verse 20, it says, um, you know, finds out, Joseph finds out Mary's pregnant and he knows he's not the father. He wants to divorce her. But as he considered these things, verse 20 says, behold, again, 
boom, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, almost the exact same words as we see here in chapter 2, and saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived of risen is from the Holy Spirit. And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took her as his wife. Right? Uh, later, um, when they are in Egypt, and at the end of chapter 2, it says, When Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph. Right? So this is, again, same words okay, in Egypt, uh, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother, and they went to the land of Israel. Right? So you see this, just this pattern. Uh, Joseph gets these dreams, and uh, he does what he's told. Um, and he, he just trusts in God's leading. He trusts in God's plan. Uh, so here again, the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Rise, take the child, and flee to Egypt. And so he rose, took the child, and departed to Egypt. And, and Joseph does this without questioning or complaining, right? And I don't know about you, but I, I don't like a lot of change. I don't know how Joseph was if he was kind of a spontaneous guy, but this is pretty spontaneous, right? Middle of the night, two in the morning, uh, get out of here. And, and Joseph doesn't say, you know, we just got this house. We just paid for a one-year lease, right? I just painted the living room. Like, really? No, he doesn't question it. He doesn't... Uh, they say, you know, where are we going to live? Um, can't we wait till Jesus gets just a little bigger? This is going to be kind of hard carrying this little little guy, right? It's kind of awkward. It's inconvenient, right? No, he's just obedient, right? And not only is he obedient without question or complaining, but also without hesitation. Now, in all fairness, uh, the reputation of Herod as a murderer was quite well known among the the Jewish people. And certainly Joseph knew that uh, if, if Herod wanted to destroy Jesus, that this was a serious threat. So I don't know that he had to think much about this. I think he uh, probably woke up Mary and said, man, we've got to go. And maybe this sense of actually panic kind of took over them as they, as they um, maybe just picture the, the soldiers coming that moment from Jerusalem looking for Jesus. And so he knows they don't have much time, so they pack their bags and they leave in the middle of the night. And throughout this we see that uh, while there are enemies who certainly want to destroy Jesus, God, God is protecting Jesus, right? God has his hand on him and he is protecting uh, Jesus. Um, but uh, this is a serious foreshadowing of things to come for Jesus, right? Um, it has birth. Jesus has those who want to destroy him. And this will be a theme throughout his life, especially specifically through his ministry. Uh, when he becomes public, when he uh, announces himself as the fulfillment of, of these prophecies as the Messiah, Jesus has enemies. And, and they're not just people who just don't like him. They're not people who just are not a fan of him. These are people who want to destroy him. Right. They are seeking to destroy him early on in his ministry, right? long before he ever ends up in Jerusalem at Passover. Long before that, uh, Matthew twelve fourteen, it says, But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Right? And so we see this pattern, this, uh, this, this foreshadowing of Jesus' life. 
And of course, we know that eventually they succeed. Right? God does protect Jesus, but not forever. He only protects them until the time is right, until his hour has come. And, um, and we know that, that this really foreshadows the purpose for Jesus' coming. Right? Jesus came as king. He was born, this newborn king. The Magi uh, heralded him as, uh, as king, as Messiah. Um, but but we, we know that he is a Messiah. He is a king who comes to die for us. Right? Remarkably. And we see that foreshadowed even here. Um, Matthew 17.22 says, As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to his disciples, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. And that was a repeating um, word from Jesus, that his life would end at the cross. right? And that was his purpose in coming. Uh, and so it's important to include this this scene, this understanding of the nativity, uh, to understand that Jesus came born a newborn king, a Messiah, but a Messiah who would ultimately die for us, right? Who who would ultimately give his life on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins, uh, right? So we see this, and if if the account ended there, we we could stop there, and, and that would be enough. Uh, this picture of Jesus who was not worshipped by everybody uh, and his enemies uh, would destroy him and ultimately um, send him to the cross. But that was God's purpose as uh, why he came. Um, but, but what's interesting is that Matthew, that's not how Matthew actually interprets these events. Like Matthew doesn't say, you know, and thus, you know, this pointed to uh, Jesus Triumph on the cross, right? That's not what, that's not how, how Matthew understands what's going on here. And instead, he understands it, uh, from Old Testament prophecy. And, and Matthew, in his own interpretation, gives this quote from, uh, from, um, Hosea. He says, This was to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Uh, and, and that's really what, we want to land on and talk about most this morning is what what does this mean, right? Um, now, uh, throughout uh, Jesus' life, we see, and, and Matthew especially calls attention to this, that throughout Jesus' life, he is fulfilling Old Testament prophecy, which is remarkable. You know, Jesus is not an accident. Jesus didn't just show up on the scene and kind of do stuff randomly disconnected from the Old Testament. Everything he does, in fact, is fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. And all of the Old Testament points to Jesus and to his arriving and to his life and to his ministry and even to his death and resurrection. And so, uh, throughout the birth account, actually, uh, Matthew is very diligent to uh, point out the specific ways that Jesus is fulfilling uh, the Old Testament. And so here he's quoting from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. Right? And, um, and actually, uh, many people have noted that Matthew chapter 1 and 2, uh, more so than the account in Luke, Matthew especially, kind of reads like a travel log. Right? Um, Jesus is born in Bethlehem, 
But then he goes to Egypt and he lives there for a while. And then the angel in another vision says, return to Israel. Uh, but they can't actually go to Jerusalem, so they end up in Nazareth, right? So it's this travelogue. And it would be easy to think that Matthew's just giving us some kind of historical data about different places Jesus lived. Um, but actually, it's more than that, right? In each instance, Matthew report, uh, connects these places Jesus lived and traveled with prophecy, right? So that even this journeying around in his, in his early years... Uh, was was prophesied, right? So in Matthew chapter 2, verse 3, it says, When Herod heard this, he was troubled, and all the people with him, and he assembles the scribes and the the people, uh, and he inquired where the Christ was to be born, and they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it was written by the prophet. Right? So Jesus' birth in Bethlehem was not accidental. Right? It was prophesied that he would be born in Bethlehem. Um, then, of course, here we see that uh, it says this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken, what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I call my son. Right? So it's not random that he's going to Egypt. It's not just convenient. It's not just a, a good place to escape. It was prophetic. Right? He's fulfilling prophecy. And then when, even when he returns, uh, and he returns and he ends up in Nazareth, it says, in verse 23 of chapter 2, And we went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene, right? somebody from Nazareth. Um, so it's not just a travelogue, right? Matthew is pointing out in each step of the journey that Jesus is fulfilling prophecy, right? that he is filling up, he's completing uh, this picture that was painted of him of what he would do and how he'd be in the Old Testament, even just in his arrival, in his birth, right? Uh, so, so, um, so here we have this example, right? This is prophecy. Out of Egypt I called my son. This prophecy from Hosea, so it's pretty cut and dry, right? Pretty easy. Jesus is fulfilling this prophecy. Except, except if you actually read, if you go back and read Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, um, there's, there's some problems here. Okay, and I've got to be honest, there's a problem with this. Um, and so, uh, to, to understand this problem, let's compare Micah 5.2 with Hosea 11.1. All right? uh, Micah 5.2 is the prophecy of, that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. And let me read it. And for those of you who like English, I want you to pay attention to the verb tense. Okay, for those of you who don't like English grammar, you can just ignore this part. Take a little nap, right? But, but notice the grammar. Notice the, the verb tense here. It says, But you, O Bethlehem and Ephrathah, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who will be ruler in Israel. Okay, what tense is that? Future, right? Future tense. He's saying this is what will happen. Right? Out of you will come uh, a ruler. Right? One who will be ruler over the house of Israel. Okay, so let's compare that with Hosea, the one we're looking at, the prophecy we're looking at, quoted here by Matthew. Notice the verb tense here. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. Okay, future tense or past tense? How many vote, vote future tense? 
Okay, good. None of you have to go back and take third grade English, right? How many of you say past tense? Right, past tense, right? Past tense. So here's a problem. Like, if this is prophecy, how can prophecy be past tense, right? Prophecy, you know, we think of prophecy as predicting something that's going to happen in the future. But there's a problem with uh, Matthew quoting Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, because it's actually not predicting anything. Right? And if we read the whole, the whole section, the whole passage here, um, uh, we, we see that it's actually talking about literal Israel and their history, not their future. Right? And he's actually remembering back to when Israel was a child. Right? He says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. Well, when was Israel a child? Well, he's picturing back to the very inception of Israel as a nation when God rescued them out of Egypt. Right? When they, when they, when God led them out of Egypt, they really weren't a nation yet. They were just a lot of people. They were just like a really big family. Right? And they weren't a nation. They weren't, they didn't have a country. They didn't have a king. They were just relatives. Maybe a million of them or so. You know, there was a lot of relatives, a big family. Been around a while. Uh, a lot of cousins. Um, and, and, and they were a child. And, and he says, I loved him and I called, I called my son out of Egypt. It's this picture of, of God bringing them out of, out of Egypt and leading them to the promised land where he set them up as a nation. And they became a people. They became this, this nation, this people of God. But Hosea is saying this because he says in verse 2, the more I called, the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to Baals and burning offerings to idols. Right? And, and, and then, we won't read the whole thing, but Hosea goes on, and he goes off on specifically Ephraim, northern Israel, uh, the kingdom of the north, for their idol worship, and for their failure to follow this God who called them out, who redeemed them, who brought them out and made them a nation. And so it's, 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 it is a word from God that's really rebuking them, right? And it's, it's all about an event that was in their history, and, and, all that had happened is they were so unfaithful to follow God ever since the Exodus, ever since God brought them out of Egypt. All right? So, you know, we read this and he says, this is fulfilling this prophecy. This is fulfilling the word of the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Well, how in the world is, is, does this work, right? In fact, many kind of more liberal scholars um, kind of laugh at this, and they say, see, Matthew couldn't even understand the Old Testament. He was confused when he read his Bible, right? Um, and, and that would be one way to look at it. Um, or maybe the problem is that we don't really understand what it means to fulfill uh, the Old Testament, what it meant for Jesus to fulfill the Old Testament. And you see, in the Old Testament, there's actually two kinds of prophecy. Uh, we tend to think of prophecy as being something that's predicting future events, right? And so we think of when the prophets spoke prophecy, they were always telling the future. But actually, that, that, that is one, one meaning, and we see that in Micah where, the, where he's predicting that this ruler will come out of Bethlehem. That is one kind of prophecy. But another kind of prophecy is just really the simple meaning that a prophecy means some, a word from God. Right? Prophecy simply is a word from God. So the prophets are constantly saying, thus says the Lord. Right? 
Alright, I'm not making this up. I didn't, I'm, this is not something I came up with my own head. This comes from God. Right? God is speaking this word to you. I'm just the, I'm just the mailman. And I'm just delivering this message, but the message is a word from God. And that's what made it prophetic. Right? Prophetic was speaking God's word, a direct word from Him. And so, uh, very much, uh, Hosea is speaking prophecy. And it's important that if you notice, uh, Matthew's kind of careful in his wording here, right? He says, this was to fill what, what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Right? He's not really saying it's a prophecy. In other words, predicting the future. He's just saying, this is what the, the prophet spoke. This is a, fulfilling the word of God that, that God had given to Hosea, right? So, um, uh, and, and the word was essentially that, uh, that Israel had been so unfaithful in spite of God's Amazing goodness to save them and to deliver them when he called them out of Egypt. So, so how does Matthew understand Jesus' sojourn in Egypt and escaping Herod in light of, of this event uh, that, that Hosea talks about that is really the Exodus? Right? So, so what, what Matthew is saying here is that Jesus somehow, in, in his birth and in fleeing to Egypt, is, is fulfilling... Uh, Israel's exodus, right? Um, and, and what we see here is that um, there's, there's a couple ways that Jesus can fulfill Old Testament scripture. And one is, is when he does what was predicted, right? So that's clear. That's kind of the easier one, right? Uh, he fulfills the scripture that he would be born in Bethlehem because he was born in Bethlehem, right? Uh, and so that fulfills it. But there's another way that Jesus fulfills Scripture, and actually this is more common, but oftentimes overlooked by us. And that is because Jesus fulfills Old Testament because he is the real thing of which the Old Testament is a picture. Okay, He's the real thing, and many of these things in the Old Testament were just what we call types or pictures. Right? Um, uh, I tried. I don't know if I got this picture. Did I get the picture of the of the prototype of the iPhone? Is it up there? There it is. Okay, this is actually a prototype, right, of of, of the original iPhone. Wouldn't you love to carry this around in your pocket, right? Wouldn't this be handy, right? Back in the early days before they had invented the iPhone, they had a prototype. And what's a prototype? Well, it's where you take a lot of ideas. And you kind of have this vision of what you want to make. And so you start playing around with it by making a, a, a prototype, right? Like what this could look like. Thankfully, the prototype is not what the final product looks like, right? Because this would just be awkward, right, to carry around. We wouldn't be carrying this in our pocket, right? Um, uh, it, it had to be fulfilled with something better. And, and it is. And now we all have our smartphones that are much more compact, right? But the prototype... Uh, had the idea in a seed form, uh, which eventually became something better and greater. Well, that's true in the Old Testament, right? The Old Testament is full of these types, these prototypes or these pictures that were in seed form what one day Jesus would, would fulfill, right? And, and that's what, what Matthew sees in this passage, that uh, in the Exodus, uh, when God called out his son, Israel, that that would be one day fulfilled in a greater and truer way in the life of Christ. Right? 
So how how is Jesus um, a better a better Israel? Uh, how does Jesus fulfill uh, a better Exodus? Well, two ways, and, and so let's look briefly at two ways that Jesus fulfills this this prophecy, this type, like this picture in the Old Testament. First, uh, it says, "Out of Egypt I called my son," and so this prophecy identifies Israel as as a son son of God, right? Um, uh, Jesus is uh, certainly the son of God uh, for all eternity, but as as the Messiah. He was a truer son who represented in himself what Israel was supposed to be as a son. Well, what was Israel supposed to be as a son? Well, in English, we have this idiom, this expression that says, like father, like son. Right? And it means, it means a lot of times we can look at a, at a child and we can see something of the father in the child, right? Maybe they look alike. Maybe they have similar mannerisms. And... Um, the, the, the truth is that our children often, often mimic or copy us. Often not the best parts of us, actually, right? And sometimes they do things and we're like, oh my, you know, I see myself, not the best part of me and my kids, right? Uh, why? Because that, that's how it works, right? We pass on to our children something of ourselves and they become kind of mini versions of us. To grow up, to become sometimes adult versions of us in some sense. And, and that was to be true of Israel. Right? Israel was to be a representation of God's character and nature in the world. Right? They were to absorb something of who God was. And the way they conducted themselves as a nation was to show the world something of who God was. Right? They were to be a son. They were to be like the Father. And that was really their mission and purpose. So God, God, brought them out of Israel, he made them a nation because he loved them, because he cared for them, but also so that they would show the world who God was and what he was like. And so we see in, in Scripture that uh, they were to be identified as a, as a loved son, a dearly loved son. Uh, Jeremiah 31.20 puts it this way, Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? And of course the implied answer is yes. He's this dearly loved child. Uh, For as often as I speak against him, because he was a rebellious son, uh, I do remember him still. Therefore my heart yearns for him, and I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. And so they were to represent this. They were to represent before the world God's love for his children. right? And the way God showed mercy and kindness and grace to them, the way he was patient with them and forgave them, uh, was to model before them that they were dearly loved. Right? Um, it, it's sad that some of the other religions outside of Judaism and Christianity that follow the Old Testament kind of miss this whole part of God's character and his relationship with Israel. Right? Uh, that's probably because they are not descendants of Isaac, they're descendants of Ishmael. And somehow that lo- got lost in translation. Right? And, and they, they, they're not known as a people of grace and love. And their God is not known as a father who's loving towards his child. Right? But that was to be Israel. Right? Uh, as part of that, they were also to glorify God. As sons, they were to worship God and honor him and show the world that God was worthy of praise. Right? So Isaiah 49.3 says, And he said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Right? So 
God's honor and glory was to be evident and visible in, in his son, Israel. Uh, in addition to that, they were to be witnesses to God as the one true and living God. So Isaiah 43.10 says this, You are my witnesses, declared the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. Right, so they were to worship one true God, and they were to be a witness to this one true God. And that's why their drifting off to worship the Baals and the idols was such a problem. How could they be a witness to the one true God when they're worshiping many gods, right? They were not being a good son. Uh, ultimately, though, uh, the, the main, uh, the great commission, really, of Israel was in in the covenant that God first made with Abraham, when he said this, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands, and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Right? So in other words, God said to Abraham, look, my purpose for you is to bless you, but not just so that you can be blessed and have a happy life and you and your offspring, but that so through you, all the world will be blessed, right? All the world will be blessed. All the nations will be blessed through you. But of course, we know from the whole Old Testament that Israel had been a major failure and disappointment as a son. Right? A major disappointment. And at every level, in every one of these ways, they had failed their purpose, right? So in Malachi, last book of the Old Testament, Malachi says this about Israel. A son honors his father and a servant his master. Right? Because that's kind of a basic principle of the Old Testament. A son honors his father. That's what it means to be a good son. But God says, if then I am a father, where is my honor? Right? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name? Right, and he rebukes the priests, the leaders of Israel, because as a father they should have been honoring him, but they had failed over and over. They were not good sons. Right? Uh, but Jesus uh, travels to Egypt to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophets, out of Egypt I called my son. Right? Jesus is born as the true Israel the true son who will not fail his father, right? Uh, he is the son who, who the father says, behold, my, my dearly loved son in whom I am pleased, right? It is baptism. And on the Mount of Transfiguration, same formula. Behold, my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him, right? He's the son who is dearly loved. He is the, he is the true and perfect son who glorifies the father, uh, and repeatedly Jesus says, look, I'm doing all this to, to glorify my Father who is in heaven. Everything Jesus did, even going to the cross, was ultimately, not just to save the world, but ultimately to glorify his Father. Right? Uh, uh, he shows the world who God is. John 14:9. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long that you don't know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Right, so Jesus was the perfect embodiment of the Father. He was a like Father, like Son, who shows us who the Father is. Uh, 
And ultimately we know that through Jesus, all the earth is blessed. As, as we know in that familiar verse passage in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God does not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Right. So first, uh, first thing I think in, in Matthew intended uh, by applying this uh, prophecy to Jesus is that Jesus fulfilled it as the perfect son, right? the perfect son. But there's probably another picture here as well. Uh, and in the in in the birth story, uh, there's there's many parallels with the birth of Moses. And right? if you're reading this gospel from a, a Hebrew perspective you would be thinking about Moses who also escaped, as it were, by the skin of his teeth from death as an infant, right? Because just like Herod wants to kill all the babies in Bethlehem to, to get Jesus, uh, Pharaoh is trying to wipe out all the firstborn, uh, well, just all the maleborn, not just the firstborn, but all the male children in Egypt because he wants to wipe out Israel, right? And just as Jesus escapes uh, fleeing in the middle of the night to Egypt. Moses escapes death by being placed in a basket in the Nile, right? Uh, both are, we see God's hand rescuing them and saving them. Uh, not only that, but later um, Moses flees uh, from the wrath of Pharaoh who wants to kill him uh, and, and escapes for 40 years in the wilderness, just as Jesus uh, escapes into the wilderness to Egypt, right? Uh, and most significantly, God spares Moses because he brings him back to be the deliverer who will rescue the people out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. Uh, and as we noted earlier, God protects Jesus, but not forever, only until the time is right for him to do what? To redeem his people, right? To lead them out of slavery, but not slavery to Egypt, the bondage uh, to sin and death. Right? Uh, so that Jesus is not only the true son Israel, but Jesus is also the truer and greater Moses. Right, The truer and greater Moses who came uh, to, uh, to redeem us, to deliver us, to effect a second exodus, uh, not from Egypt, but from sin and death. Right? So just as Moses led Israel out of slavery into the promised land to be uh, his special people, so Jesus came to lead us out of sin and death and to make us God's special people. Right? If we trust him, if we follow him. So First Peter 2, Peter, Peter puts it this way, As you come to him, that is Jesus, a living stone, rejected by men in the sight of God, uh, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness 
into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Um, So so I think that's what... uh, that's what Matthew is calling out when he when he says uh, that uh, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Right, and I think it's important. You know, it's great to remember the Magi. It's great to remember the shepherd, the good guys. You know, it's right that we have the shepherd candle. Right? It's right that we want to. We want to celebrate those who worship Jesus because we want to worship him. But, but here's the, the great part of the Christmas story, is that we don't only worship him as the newborn king. Right? That's worthy. right? He is worthy as a king. Like the Magi, we should bow and worship him as one who has power and authority, who's a king who deserves our worship. But that worship gets uh, intensified. right? It gets, it gets upgraded when we understand that that this king uh, also came to die for us. He didn't just come to rule. He didn't just come to be king of the universe. He came ultimately as a king who laid down his life for us. And how much more deep our worship is when we understand that that he loved us. That he was the perfect son who who gave up his life for us so that we could be sons, right? So that we could be sons not like Israel, <laughs> who failed at every turn. But we could be sons who glorify God, who honor him through lives who are like him, because the work of the cross is to transform us. It is to make us more and more like him, right? Um, so I don't know, you know, I don't know that they'll start manufacturing nativity scenes with Mary and Jesus, Joseph on the run. I think they should. Um, it'll be a better nativity. Uh, but I hope that this helps us weave into the story, right, the full truth of why Jesus came. Right? And that even in his birth account, uh, it points to his life and the end of the story. Right? Um, and, and so we worship him uh, in ways that the shepherds and the magi couldn't understand. Because we know what it means that Jesus fulfilled the words spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. Let's pray. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Thank you.